Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 9 through 11. The Bible says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on the message this morning, that it be the message you have for us this morning, Lord. I pray that it wouldn't be my thoughts or my opinions, but your word that reigns free this morning. May we be people of prayer. May we recognize the power of prayer, the answerer of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Amen. Proverbs chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 1, I'm sorry. I'm already in the night service. In the book of Proverbs. We're back to our Colossians series this morning. And in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul is talking about prayer in this part of the scripture. I think we all can agree that prayer is important. Corey Ten Boom used to say, Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? It's a wise thought there. Leonard Ravenhill said at the judgment seat, the most embarrassing thing the believer will face will be the smallness of his praying. He also said prayer is not a preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. He went on to say prayer is the most unexplored area of the Christian life. John Piper said one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove in the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Powerful quotes on prayer. One of the greatest examples in modern church history of prayer is George Mueller. I mention him a lot. You say, why do you mention him so much? Because he greatly impacted my life. And you tend to mention those who greatly impact your life. But his life was marked as a life of prayer. My wife and I just a couple days ago, as we were sick and Moaning and groaning. I was. You weren't sick at the time, were you? I was sick, moaning and groaning. We watched a new biography of, of George Mueller. And it really moved me. He spent many hours each day in prayer. He believed and prayed and proved that you can move God or move man through God by prayer alone. He read the Bible two hundred times in his life. He ran a missions organization called the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. He ran three orphanages that cared for about ten thousand orphans in his lifetime. At the time, he preached three times a day, or three times a week, I'm sorry, totaling about 10,000 sermons. When he was 70 years old, instead of retiring, he became a missionary for 17 years until he was 87 years old. He traveled to 42 countries. Mind you, this is before air travel. He traveled to 42 countries, preaching once a day to a total of about 3 million people. From 87 to his death at 92, he pastored, preached, cared for the orphans, oversaw his missions agency, and prayed. If he had time to pray, surely we, in the 21st century, with our technology and fast-moving cars, have time to pray. When giving the secret to prayer, he said, let none expect to have the mastery over his inward corruption in any degree without going in his weakness again and again to the Lord for strength. 
nor will prayer with others or conversing with the brethren make up for secret prayer. It is a common, mist- a common temptation of Satan to make us give up the reading of the word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone, as if it were of no use to read the scriptures when we do not enjoy them, or as if it were of no use to pray when we have no spirit of prayer. Whilst it is true, in order to enjoy the word, we ought to continue to read it, and the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. For the less we read the word of God, the less we desire to read it, and the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. The Bible uh, is full of accounts of prayer warriors. Uh, we see uh, Daniel, who prayed all night to God, was protected from the lions. We see Elijah, who closed and opened the heavens through prayer, even calling down fire from heaven. Hannah received a child, though she was barren, through prayer. And Jesus himself often prayed through the night. Turn to Mark chapter 6 briefly. Mark chapter 6. Jesus was a man of prayer. If we're to be like Jesus, we must be men and women of prayer. If Jesus prayed, Jesus, who is God, prayed, how much more should we pray? Mark 6.45. Mark 6.45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent them away, or while he sent away the people, and when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. Go to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Daniel was a man of prayer. Elijah was a man of prayer. Hannah was a woman of prayer. And Jesus, our Lord, was a man of prayer. Luke 6, 12. And it came to pass in those days... That he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer unto God. Have you ever continued all night in prayer unto I haven't. Honestly, I haven't. I should, but I haven't. But Jesus did. He prayed all night. Before he chose his apostles, he prayed all night to God. Before we look at the ways that Paul prayed for this church, I think it's just as important to understand the ways that Paul didn't pray. For this church, Paul didn't pray for their material wealth. Did you notice that? As you read the text, he didn't pray for their, but doesn't money solve everything? No, it doesn't. Paul didn't care about money. Paul didn't care about their prosperity. I think this is important to mention this morning because it's something in our day and age called the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Galatians says there is no other gospel than the one that Paul preached. Paul never gave illusion that godliness brings gain. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. Maybe they had more money, their problems would be over. No. Not according to Paul. The prosperity gospel today teaches us that, that God wants us to be wealthy. He wants us. We can just claim it, right? We can just claim it. I heard a preacher on TV... I don't mind calling out false teachers. His name is Rod Parsley. He one time, I heard him when I was a teenager, he preached a sermon and he sat down. He had a, he had a BMW on the, on the stage of the church. And he sat down. He says, Jesus wants me to have this BMW and all I have to do is claim it and it's mine. I don't mean to be harsh, but when he got cancer, he ran to the doctors in chemotherapy. Because suddenly, naming it and claiming it wouldn't bring him what he thought God wanted him to have. 
He said, he, he said, God wants me to be healed. Really? Then why don't you name it and claim it? And the answer is because you can't live that way. He can name and claim that BMW because he had millions of dollars in the bank that he had filched from God's people, from the professing church, taking their money, making them believe that if they send him money, God will answer their prayers. And so he had money for the BMW. But when it came to the cancer, boy, that was a little bit harder, wasn't it? Hard to name and claim the cancer, isn't it? It doesn't listen to you quite that way. And when stuff like that happens, it shows the prosperity gospel to be the sham that it is. Look at 1 Timothy 6.5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. Surely, people say, this church is a good church. Look how much God is blessing them. They have 10,000 people, Ishan. They got millions of dollars in the bank. Surely God's pouring his blessings on them. No. That's not a sign that godliness is not a sign of, or gain is not a sign of godliness. And Paul here says, the only ones who believe that are men of perverse disputings, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. Listen, there are churches meeting today in Africa in fields with three or four people on wooden benches that are, have more of the Spirit of God than mega churches in America have. Because it doesn't matter what you have. It's not a sign that God is blessing you because you have a lot. Because you have nice things or a nice car or nice clothes. I'm pretty sure there are homeless people today who have more of the Spirit of God than some of these prosperity gospel preachers have. He says that men of corrupt minds believe that gain is godliness. Paul actually goes the other way and says, be content with what you have. Look at verse number six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. He says, you want godly? is to be content with what you have. You brought nothing in. You're taking nothing with you. If you have food and clothes, be content and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Everything else is just an add-on. And God can bless us. He, he, he will meet our needs. He will meet our needs financially. He will meet... I mean, God, God is in that business. I'm, that's, but I'm not saying... What I'm not saying is, if you're rich, you're godly. Or if you're rich, that's a sign that God's blessing you. Oh, you lost your job. You must be in sin. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Godly people lose their jobs. Godly people are on welfare. And there are rich people, many, many rich people, who do not know the true God. We've got to stop pretending that gain is godliness. Paul was not praying, saying, well, if you had more money, you'd be out of all your problems not what Paul is teaching at all. Then he explains why the idea of the prosperity gospel is so damning. Look at verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and the snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows 
But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. The prosperity gospel does not lead to godliness. It leads to many foolish and hurtful lusts. It, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's the root which sprouts many forms of evil, right? Many forms of evil come. Do you know, do you know why most wars happen between nations? Love of money. To get something that they have that we don't have. Do you know why robberies just by the very nature exist? To get something that somebody else has that you don't have. To get ahead. Do you know, why, do you know, do you know what, 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 what motivated the mob back in the 20s and 30s and 40s? It was gain. It was money. It was status and position that you got from your money. What moves politicians and their scandals? It's almost always money. Money. It's the root of all forms of evil. Many murders have money as their root. Many affairs have money at their root. I worked in a hospital for a long time. I'll be honest, do you know how many nurses try to get in relationships with married doctors? They're not doing it because the, the 67-year-old bald doctor is handsome. They're doing it because he's rich. Because he can buy them things. And I worked in hospitals for over 10 years. That's not, a, that's not a, I'm not mentioning one or two people I knew of. There are dozens of people, multiple dozens, who broke up marriages because they wanted money for themselves. Those who covet wealth have erred from the faith, Paul says. So much for the prosperity gospel, right? They've erred from the faith. Paul says to flee the pursuit of wealth in order to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and all the other stuff. You know what that tells me? You can't pursue them both at the same time. We cannot pursue righteousness and faith and godliness and wealth at the same time. You must pick who you're going to pursue. Do you want to be wealthy? Do you seek to be wealthy? Is your mindset on not just how can I get by, not just let me take care of your family. That's not what I'm saying. But if your thought is how can I be rich? How can I be comfortably wealthy? By the way, when you're comfortably wealthy, you don't rely on God. You don't need God. I think God likes us to not be comfortably wealthy. So we look to him for our provision. But anyways, that, that aside, if you're seeking to be rich, you're not seeking faith godliness, and those other things. If you're going to seek to be godly, don't seek to be rich. Because money draws away the heart. Money draws away the heart. I remember the testimony of uh, well, C.T. Studd. You guys familiar with C.T. Studd? Missionary to Africa. He was a uh, world champion it's a sport in England. I don't forget their sports now. Anyways, I'm sick. My head's swimming. It could have been uh, soccer. It could have been they have other sports. I don't know. The, the British are interesting. They got sports. Anyways, he was, a, he was a world champion sports team over in England. Got saved in a D.L. Moody campaign. He inherited a fortune. I mean millions of dollars in 1800s money. 
which would be billions today. And he and his new wife, when they inherited that money, oh, by the way, when I say he was a, on a, a world champion sports team, I mean he could have been pro, been very famous throughout the United Kingdom. He chose to be a missionary to Africa. When his family inherited millions of dollars, they gave it all away. They said, we want to start with a clean slate with the Lord. Just looking to him for provision. You can't pursue wealth and comfort and ease in this world and seek the godliness that comes from following the crucified Savior. Our Lord had nowhere to lay his head. Are we to be much better off than him? So the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. Why didn't Paul pray for God to meet their needs? Maybe he could just pray for God to meet their needs. These are poor Christians. If you don't realize that all Christians in the Bible were pretty much poor Christians. The government would come and take their possessions, their homes. They had nothing. They had very little but their faith. Why didn't Paul pray for God to meet their needs at least? He didn't have to. Because Paul knew keenly that God had already promised to meet their needs. I'm going to read you three texts for sake of time. Don't, don't turn there, but you can mark them down and read them later. Matthew 6, 31-33. Take therefore, or therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We, we memorize that as little kids in Sunday school. So I think the power of the truth escapes us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you seek his kingdom and you seek his righteousness. And then he promises what? All these things. What things? Well, he says, don't take thought for what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to put on. In other words, the daily necessities of life. Don't worry about that. Worry about the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. If you seek those things, God will give you the rest. He'll supply your needs if you put yourself, pour yourself into seeking his kingdom. Too many in the church today <coughs> are pouring themselves into seeking the things of the world. <coughs> we tell ourselves this lie about, well, we're just taking care of our families or we're just trying to get the bare necessities. No, no, no. We're, we're trying to get this world's good and we don't have time for the kingdom of God. George Mueller had a man come to him He'd been preaching on prayer and the necessity of daily praying and reading your Bible. This man came to him. This man said, you don't understand, Pastor. I have to work 16 hours a day or my family won't eat. Mueller said, that's nonsense. He says, no, I'm, I'm telling you, Pastor, that's what I have to work. He says, I know what you're telling me. But the Bible tells me, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And he says, now who should I believe, you or St. Matthew? And the guy didn't have an answer for him. He says, I'll tell you what. He goes, you work 12 hours a day. Then give yourself to the Lord for two hours a day. And then give yourself to your family for two hours a day because he didn't get to see his family. Remember those days they didn't have electricity. So when you got home after dark, the kids were in bed. 
He said, give yourself to your family for two hours. Give yourself to the Lord alone for two hours a day. And you'll find that God will meet every one of your needs. The man came back to him a month later and said, you're right. I've been working 12 hours a day. He goes, through this means or that means or this means or that means, God has never let us go hungry. And all of our bills are paid on time. That's a truth. That's a promise that we can hold to. If we don't seek the world and we seek Christ's kingdom, Christ will meet our needs. Another one, Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When Paul, the context of that verse that Paul gives there, he says, my God's going to supply all your need. But if you read the whole context, the verses around it, he was talking about how they've been giving and supporting him in his missionary work. So in relation to their giving and supporting his missionary work, he promised them God will supply all their need. In other words, you've given to the work of the Lord. The Lord will give to meet your basic needs. They will be met. A similar promise in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 10. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. This is about supporting Paul's missionary work. But he says, you give to the Lord, you support, you, you, you pour yourself into God's kingdom, that God will make all grace abound for you, that you will always have all sufficiency in all things in order to abound to every good work. In other words, God's not going to make you rich so that you can sit in a mansion on a hilltop. But he's going to give you money so that you can keep pouring that money into the work of the kingdom of God. That's not the prosperity gospel, by the way. That's all for self-gain. And then he says, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to go back and read that chapter, that was a very, very poor church, Church of Macedonia. They gave out of their poverty, Paul says, to support his missionary work. Out of their poverty, he said they gave more than they could afford. They gave more than they could afford to help Paul in his missionary work. And Paul, when writing about that giving, says God will minister seed to the sower. Right? That's to us who are sowing the seed. He'll minister bread for our food and multiply our seed sown. Which means he, what he's saying there by ministering bread for our food is he will meet our daily needs if we're pouring ourselves into the ministry of the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, are you preaching a prosperity gospel? Are you saying we give to get? No. I'm saying we don't give to get for ourselves. But if we give freely to the Lord's work, the Lord will meet our needs. And he'll make sure that we have more to give into his kingdom. And our needs will be met. So if Paul didn't pray for their needs, because he knew God already promised to meet them, if he didn't pray for their prosperity, because that's soul-crushing, what did he pray for? We'll go back to our text in Colossians chapter 1. Let's see what Paul did pray for for this church. I listened to a lady one time give a testimony. And she had a need. She was taking before the Lord. And, and, and let me just preface this because I don't want things to get misunderstood. It's not wrong to pray for ourselves. It's not wrong to pray for our own needs. I pray daily, Lord, give my wife a better husband. 
It's not wrong to pray for our needs. But in this situation, she had been praying for healing for a friend of hers from a very serious illness. And the friend had gotten more tests and they confirmed more tests, confirmed more tests, confirmed more tests, confirmed. And she says, one night I got down on my knees to pray for my friend. And I began to pray. And she said it was the closest thing she'd ever experienced to praying in the spirit. She goes, I just started praying. And an hour had passed and I realized I had never mentioned my friend's need. I had prayed for everybody else I knew. And she, she, I don't know why. I meant to pray for my friend, but my mind just like... As if I wasn't controlling what I was saying. I was just talking, praying for various people. The next day, her friend calls her up. Says, I had my latest scan last night, and it came back clear. And she realized something. As she poured herself in prayer for other people, just ministering within the kingdom of God, God took care of the need that was closest to her heart. God knows our needs before we even say them. He knew what she wanted. She called several of those other people that she had prayed for that night to tell them she, was, she had prayed for them. And all of them that she called had said, oh, I'm so glad you prayed that night. I was going through this. I was going through this. I was going through this. She didn't know that. Just pouring herself in the kingdom of God and God met her need. So what did Paul pray for? Well, his prayer centered on three specific things. Number one, he prayed for their minds. Look at verse number nine. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He wanted them to know the will of God. He already mentioned in verses four through six that they were bringing forth fruit. He knew that as long as they knew the will of God, they would act on it. He prayed for them to have wisdom, which only comes from God. And spiritual understanding. He wanted them to have the wisdom, of course, to discern the will of God. And he wanted them to understand spiritual things. I'll be honest. I'd rather someone pray this for me, right? What did he pray for? He says, I do not cease to pray for you. Desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What a deep prayer that is. I'd rather someone pray that for me than just to pray, Lord, bless him. Lord, keep him. Lord, provide for him. Those are general prayers. And oftentimes I think we pray general prayers because we're afraid of not getting answers, right? So if we pray general prayers, we don't know if our prayer was answered or not, and so we can just chalk it up to it was answered. Oh, they're still alive. I guess God blessed them. God protected them, you know. Paul's not being general here. He's praying for specific, he's, these are specific things that I want to see come out in your life. Lord, give them uh, the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Help them to, to, to know the things of the Spirit. Help them to know you better, to be drawn nearer to you. We need wisdom to discern the will of God and to know good from evil. We also need spiritual understanding that we might rightly interpret and apply the Word of God to our lives. These are the prayers that Paul is praying. Sometimes I look at the prayers of Paul and I consider the smallness of my praying. I don't pray for spiritual things enough for people. Right? Because we're all caught up in the physical. 
Because we don't live too much in the physical realm, don't we? We don't think about the spiritual enough. And so I find myself just praying for people, for their, for their finances, for their housing, for, for this and for that, and for, for, to, for God to meet their basic needs. And I, need, I need to remind myself that God has promised to do that already. If they're serving him and seeking his kingdom, he's going to meet their needs. But they have spiritual matters. They have spiritual matters that they need, that only God can give, and that's where I need to center my prayers. I need to pray for spiritual things. Not just, Lord, give my wife a better husband, but Lord, help me to discern how I need to apply the word of God to my wife. How I need to respond in certain situations. Lord, give me wisdom and spiritual discernment when my temper is short, when I don't feel good, when I'm rushed or hurried, Lord. Let me respond with wisdom and kindness, Lord. Change me from the end. We've got to stop praying these generic prayers. Lord, send revival. What does that mean? It means to draw us nearer in a fellowship with Christ. That we would love Christ more with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. That this world would would shrink in our eyes and that the kingdom of God would be magnified in our eyes. That we would pray more, read the word more, witness more, have great boldness in our witness. When When I say bring revival, Lord, I mean there are specific things I want to see answered. Let's stop being so general. And let's stop focusing our prayers on the the things of this world. God will meet our needs. He will. He knows them already. You know why we don't grow spiritually? We don't ask for it. We don't pray spiritual prayers. That's why we don't grow in our, our, our spirit. So he prayed for their minds. He prayed that their minds would be fixed upon Christ and his word. That they would have wisdom and spiritual understanding. Have you ever prayed for someone to have wisdom and spiritual? I never have. We need to pray this way, church. We need to stop focusing on the outward and focus on the inward man. Secondly, he prayed for their conduct. Look at verse 10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wanted them to excel in holiness. He said that you might walk worthy of the Lord, being fruitful in every good work. His prayer was for them to bear more fruit for God. He just acknowledged in verses 4 through 6 that the grace of God had borne fruit in their lives, and now he was really urging them, don't be satisfied with some fruit. Bear much fruit. Be very fruitful. Being fruitful in every good work. John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. We have such a, a lax Christianity today that we're happy if there's just a little bit of fruit in our lives. Listen, don't be happy with a little bit of fruit. Bear much fruit. We should look at the fruit in our lives and say, Lord, give us more fruit. Give us more holiness. Give us more love for you. Give us more love for the lost. Not just some fruit, but much fruit. In the parable of the soils, in Matthew 13, Jesus told us that all believers bear fruit. The believers are the good soil. And they all bore fruit. Some 30 
some 60, some 100. Some will bear more fruit than others. Do you know why the 30 group only bore 30? I believe. Because they were satisfied with 30. And the 60 group, they bore 60 because they were satisfied with 60. And those who bore 100 fold fruit, because they pressed on and they weren't happy with 30 or 60. In other words, never arrive in the Christian life. Never plateau. Never go on cruise control. Never say, I bear fruit for God, so therefore I'm good. Hey, bearing fruit for God is evidence that you're saved. So if you're, if you're, if you're making your calling and election sure, absolutely. Look at your fruit and say, yes, I'm good. I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I bear fruit for God. But then look at our lives and don't, don't be content to say, all right, I've changed a little bit. No, no, I want to change more. Well, I love Jesus more than I did before I was saved, so now I'm good. No, I want to love Jesus more. Well, I walk more in holiness this year than I did last year. Wonderful. Next year, I want to walk more in holiness. I want to pray more. I want to read my Bible more. I want to preach the gospel more than I have before. He's telling don't don't be satisfied with some fruit. Bear much fruit. Press on in the Christian life. Never be satisfied. Never feel like you're at the place now. This is the place where God wants me to be. Do you know where God wants you to be? Glorified in heaven. And until you're perfectly glorified, we press on in bearing fruit here. We never arrive. Paul wanted to be fruitful in the Christian life. He prayed that they would walk worthy of the Lord. How do we walk worthy of the Lord? If Paul's praying for them to do it, they must be able to do it, right? So how do we walk worthy? Go to Colossians chapter 2. How do we walk worthy of the Lord? I'm going to try to give you some ideas without giving away my sermon for Colossians chapter 2. Or, or chapter 3, I mean, sorry. Chapter 3. How do we walk worthy of the Lord, Christian? Verse 2. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That is how we walk worthy of the Lord. There are a lot of people today who profess Christ who don't walk worthy of Christ because their eyes and their affection, their love is set on this world. That's nonsense. We've got to stop that. We've got to turn from that. This world has nothing to offer us. 60,000 people will gather downtown. Well, not downtown. In Carson. At SoFi Stadium today. 60,000 people Seeking fun, beer, men or women, a good time, and a win for their team. And tomorrow, none of it will matter. None of it. Maybe the win for their team will matter, but then what? The best you can do is a Super Bowl. And then it's all over. And then it's just a footnote in history. And the next year, there's some big new team, and you got to try all over again. The only people down there that I know personally who are better off than those 60,000 people are named Tatsuo and Leo because their affection is not set on a football game or a good time. It's set on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to walk worthy of the Lord? Set your affection on things above. If you love this world, you will never walk worthy of the Lord. You will never walk in holiness because this world is not holy. It doesn't love the holiness of God. 
So how do we set our affection on things above? Verse 5. Mortify. That means put to death. Therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, or that means evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. You set your affection on things above by putting off the works of the flesh, by walking a holy life, by putting off sin, by putting to death those things within us that love this world. That's how we set our affection on things above. That's how we walk worthy of the Lord. So these are all things we're to put away from ourselves. Then he goes into what we should be proactive about. Verse 12, we're to put on, put on holy and beloved bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. Verse 13, we are to forbear and forgive one another. Verse 14, we're to put on charity. Verse 15, we are to let the peace of God rule in our hearts and be thankful. So in other words, to walk worthy of the Lord, there are things we must put off and things we must put on. Put off lying, malice, slander, evil desires. Put on humility, kindness, faith, charity, long-suffering. By putting off the things of this world and putting on the things of the characteristics of the kingdom of God, we will set our affection there, not here. Go back to our text. So the Bible is clear that while we are part, we have our part in walking worthy of the Lord, the battle's not ours alone. Right? So he prays for them to do these things, but he's also praying for God to do this work in them. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Wherefore, my, my beloved, as you have also as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So he says, work out your own salvation, right? Be proactive. What does that mean? That means put off the things of the flesh, put on the things of the spirit, set your affection on things above, do your part, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the willing and the doing comes from God. And yet he urges them to do something as well. So we have our part to do. We are to be diligent in bearing fruit for God. We are to be diligent. We are to be proactive Christians, realizing that it's God that works in us to do those things. And we are only reacting to the work that he's doing in our hearts. So when Paul prays for them to walk worthy of the Lord, it's something that they can do. They can walk worthy of the Lord. But also they need the, the Lord to do the work in them. So he asked the Lord that they would walk worthy. You understand that? That's why he didn't tell them. He didn't just tell them, walk worthy. He prays for them to walk worthy. Why? Because the, 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 the walking worthy starts in here. It starts in the inner man. And it works its way out. So if we want people to walk worthy, to, to, to be solid Christians, to be faithful Christians... Who do we go to? Do I go to and say, Ishan, shape up or ship out? Be a better Christian, Ishan. Well, he may need some rebuke. I'm not saying he does, church, just so you know. He may need me to talk to him and encourage him, rebuke him at times. But if I want Ishan to grow in his Christian life, I need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, that he would walk worthy of his calling, that he would be a faithful man of God, 
a faithful witness. You know what God's going to do? God's going to do a work in his heart. And then he's going to act on the work that God's doing in his heart. Work out your own salvation, and yet it's God working in you, both for the willing and the doing. This is why Paul prays for them to walk worthy, because God must work in them. But he also wants them to work as well. <coughs> as well. So he wanted them to walk worthy, pleasing the Lord. Then he says he wants them to be fruitful in every good work. Isn't that a given, though? Isn't every good work fruitful? No. No. If you remember Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, there are works that we do on the foundation of Christ, which are nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Not everything we do for Christ bears fruit. Not everything we do for Christ will bring forth reward on the day of judgment. You realize that there are sermons I have preached that will burn up like dust because they're done for the wrong motive, with the wrong heart, or with unconfessed sin in my life. Just because you serve the Lord doesn't mean you're being fruitful. But Paul prays for them to be fruitful in every good work. Their work will be motivated by the right factors. That it will come from the heart, from sincerity. Remember, God is not pleased by our actions if the actions don't flow from a heart of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I hate to tell you, coming to church with no love for Christ is a sin. Praying with no love for Christ is a sin. Going out and sharing the gospel to be seen by men with no love for Christ is a sin. Because he's not impressed that we're doing things. He's only happy. He's only satisfied when what we're doing flows from our love for him. That's it. Then he says in our text that he wants them to, be, to increase in the knowledge of God. Once again, only God can give this knowledge, yet they need to be faithful to seek after it. There's a wonderful tension in the Bible between God's work in us and our performing the outworking of that work that's in us. He wants them to pursue knowledge of God, but then he prayed for God to give them a knowledge of God. Kim, pursue love for Christ, but we pray that God will give you a greater love for Christ. Right? Love your wife. Love your husband. But if you're having marriage trouble, we should pray that God gives you a love for your wife or your husband. That's what I'm talking about. Be diligent in doing these things. And seek the Lord to give you the heart to do these things so that what you're doing is the outworking of the work that God's doing in your heart. Thirdly, he prayed for their endurance. Look at verse 11. So he prayed for their walk in the Christian life. He prayed for their mind to be centered on Christ. And he prayed for their endurance. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. We don't give enough credit to the topic of endurance in the Christian life, do we? A Christian who turns from the faith has demonstrated that they never truly believed. Look down at verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works 
Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard. Paul mentions his other places as well, Hebrews 3.14. But we are, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. God is the one who is able to keep us faithful. That's why he prays for them to be strengthened according to his glorious power. Now, Paul constantly, we, we, we've read in Hebrews, I think, before, and other places, Paul warns people, right? Don't turn back from the faith. Press on in the faith. Don't go back. Don't go back. If you continue, if you continue, if you remain steadfast, un, uh, unmoved, settled. But then he prays for God to give them strength to endure to the end. So while he's commanding them to press on to the faith, he's praying to God to give them strength to press on to the faith. You see that tension there in the Bible? Because it's God that does the initial work, and then we act faithfully on the work that God is doing in our hearts. Jude verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's able to keep us from falling. It's an inward work. I don't expect you to stay faithful to the Christian life in your own power. You won't be able to do it. I won't be able to do it. That's why we pray to God. Keep us faithful. Keep us focused. Keep us loving Christ. Sustain our love. Sustain our Christian walk. And then we go out there and we faithfully live out the Christian life in the power that God has given us. What will it take on their part to endure the end? Look at the end of the verse. It will take patience long-suffering, and joyfulness. Now, joyfulness and long-suffering are fruits of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. And patience is a must, because perseverance in the Christian life will take patient endurance. You know why? There are setbacks in the Christian life. There are sins and temptations. There are failures in the Christian life. I don't know about you guys, but when I became a Christian, the new man didn't take over and make me perfect right from the start, did he? No. Two steps forward, one step back sometimes. Two steps in holiness, one step into sin. Repent, three steps forward, two steps back. The Christian life is an ongoing struggle. It takes patient endurance. When people turn from the faith, they say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer. Please. Some people pray 50 years for the same request. And they die and they never get the answer. But they die in faith, like in Hebrews 11, Right? They prayed, they believed, they hoped, and in their lifetimes they never received the promises because God had planned for them to not be made perfect without us. In other words, patient endurance. Abraham never received the promise that he believed in, but he died believing that it was coming. Jacob, Isaac, Seth, Abel, Noah, None of them saw the end of their faith. But they died holding on to it because they had patient endurance. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. It's not a great hall of faith of God's favorite Christians. <coughs> Hebrews is one book where Paul spends the whole book urging people, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the sacrifice. Don't go back to the high priest. We have a better temple. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better high priest. And he goes, oh, by the way, here's a list of people 
who, who themselves never received the promises, but they died believing them, embracing them, because they knew that God was good and they knew that God was right. And they had patient endurance. So let me sum this up. The power in Paul's praying was in the fact that he didn't pray generic prayers. He never, never, do a little study tonight, the prayers of Paul. You know what you're not going to find? Lord, bless them. Lord, provide for them. Lord, put a hedge around them. Lord, meet their needs. Lord, this, Lord, that. He prays very specific prayers because he expects very specific answers. There's power in that. George Mueller, to bring him up again, in his diaries, recorded over his lifetime 50,000 specific prayers that he prayed that got a specific answer. He'd write out the prayer request and the date and manner in which God answered it. Sometimes it was 30 and 40 years in the waiting before they were answered. Of those 50,000 requests that were answered specifically, 30,000 were answered within 24 hours. Do you know why he saw that and I don't? He prayed more specifically than I do. There's power in that. There's no power in generic praying. He also didn't ask for vain worldly things. Paul didn't ask for worldly goods for these people. He asked that their mind would be centered on Christ, that their walk would be centered on Christ, and that Christ would give them endurance in the Christian life. He treasured, their, he treasured more their spiritual growth and their success in the Christian life and their endurance in the faith. That's what he cared he knew it was God that worked in these people, so he prayed for God to act and for them to react to the inner working of God in their hearts. He prayed for their eternal good more than their temporal needs, and he prayed the truths of Scripture to them. Pray the truths of the Bible. Say, God, you said this in your word. Do this for us. Save them, because you suffered for sin. Provide for this, Lord. I, I can't afford to give to missions, Lord. Provide, because you said go into all the world and preach the gospel. Bring it to God and say, here's the promise. Here's the command that you made. I'm trying to be obedient to your command. He prayed the truths of the scriptures to them. Let me leave you briefly. You can write these down, or you can go back to the recording later and listen to them again. I'm going to leave you with George Mueller's five tips for fruitful praying. These have been a blessing to me as I read them. Number one, entire dependence upon the merits and mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only ground of any claim for blessing. We need that in our prayers. Number two, separation from all known sin. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us for he would be sanctioning sin. Number three, faith in God's word of promise as confirmed by his oath. Not to believe him is to make him both a liar and a perjurer. In other words, if you're going to pray, believe God. Number four, asking in accordance with his will. Our motives must be godly. We must not seek any gift of God to consume it upon our own lusts.
And number five, importunity and supplication. There must be waiting on God and waiting for God, as the husbandman has long patience to wait for the harvest. Don't demand immediate answers. Wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning. I hope this message was a blessing to somebody, Lord, as I've been contemplating prayer. We've been undertaking that in our church to focus more on prayer, Lord, and my own personal life. And as I rehashed listening to that George Mueller documentary the other night, Lord, it really stirred my heart to pray better. Lord, that I would have power in prayer like Paul had. Lord, stay my mind upon Christ. Stay my heart upon Christ. I need you to do a work in my heart and my mind, Lord. Give me the strength to faithfully work out what you're doing in my life. But Lord, that our people here, that we would stop praying generalities, that we would pray specific prayers, that we would ask for spiritual things. I'm not concerned with the physical so much, Lord. You've promised to supply all of our needs if we simply give ourselves to the kingdom of God. But Lord, that spiritual growth, that inner person, that's completely under your control, Lord. Only you can change a heart. Only you can create a new person where there was an old man before. Only you. We're not looking for 12-step programs or self-help programs, Lord. We're looking for the spirit of the living God. You can take a faithless person and make him a faithful person. You can bring, you can take an angry man and take away the anger out of his life. You can change hearts and minds, Lord. Help us to focus on the spiritual. Revival is a spiritual response to the Spirit of God. Lord, may we be specific in our praying for revival and praying for our love for holiness, Lord. May our prayers be less on this world and more on the world to come. I guess what I'm trying to pray, Lord, is make us better at praying, Lord. That we would have powerful prayers, see answers to prayers. It wasn't just Hannah or Elijah or Jesus or Paul or George Mueller. That power in prayer is available to every one of us, Lord. Help us to seek it. Help us to seek you. To love you better. Dismiss us now with your blessings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with